0: Well, good morning, dear family. I invite you to take your Bibles open to the Gospel of John in chapter 18. We've been in a series in John's Gospel looking at passages where Jesus uses the phrase, I am. And we've been learning then about who Jesus is from His own words. There's one more message left in the series. Pastor Aaron is going to bring that, um, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday, after Easter, uh, Sunday when the Jarretts and I will actually be in the Philippines. And uh, so we'll look forward to that. But we're rapidly coming to the end. I hope you've been blessed. I have been. What, what marvelous passages we've been looking at. Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday. In case you have been asleep and weren't paying attention, Palm Sunday, the celebration of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In John's Gospel, that's back to chapter 12 is where he covers that. Then, John fast-forwards four days from chapter 12 to chapter 13. Chapter 13, he starts in on the day Thursday. And he spends the next chapters, chapters 13 through 19, in the next 24 hours Thursday and Friday. Thursday evening, they are celebrating the Passover. Chapters 13 and 14, in the upper room, Jesus and the disciples. Chapters 15 and 16 and 17, they're walking through, uh, having left the upper room, walking through the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is teaching them. In chapter 17, He prays for His disciples what is often called his high priestly prayer. And then, here in chapter 18, probably close to midnight, Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem, probably through the Stephen Gate, descending down the steep slope into the Kidron Valley and across the Brook Kidron, which runs there in that ravine, and then after they cross the brook and go a little farther and start to go up the slope of the Mount of Olives. I imagine though that as Jesus crossed that little brook, that His thoughts went to the temple, knowing that beginning that afternoon before, they had begun to slaughter Passover lambs, it would continue through the night and into the next day. The blood from the lamb would be collected and it would be poured out on the altar. And that blood would go through channels and down these channels and where they would be collected and go to pipes that would take it out the back wall of the temple and down into the Kidron Valley and down to that Brook Kidron. The Jewish historian Josephus gives us an idea of the the numbers of Passover lambs that were slain on a Passover. He records about a Passover 30 years after this where the number of Passover lambs slain was 256,500. And so at this point in time if it's close to midnight This has been going on for hours. Tens of thousands of lambs have been slain and so their blood is running out from the temple and into this valley and into this brook. And as Jesus and the disciples come to walk over this brook, it is dark. They can't see it, but Jesus knows it is running red with the blood. And He can't help, I'm sure, but know that He, the true Passover Lamb, as He crosses over the blood of these lambs, He knows that in just hours His own blood will be flowing as He is crucified and offered as the real Passover sacrifice. Verse 1 of chapter 18, let me read it. When Jesus had spoken these words, His prayer in chapter 17, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Matthew and Mark inform us that this garden is called Gethsemane. Private gardens were common around the city of Jerusalem. Folks who lived in town would have a little plot of ground outside of town. Often these gardens would be surrounded by a fence or even a wall to keep, People from taking your produce off of your garden, and they would sometimes have a gate that locked. This is a scene of the, what many think was the actual garden of Gethsemane. It means olive press, and this is a garden filled with olive trees. Some of these perhaps date back to the time of Christ. They were in this garden for about three or four more hours, but John here focuses our attention just upon the last minutes in this garden. The minutes when Jesus is arrested. Here in the garden, in the darkness of Gethsemane, evil seems to gain the upper hand. The religious establishment, the political powers, think that they have finally caught their troublesome prey. Jesus is now the helpless victim of a satanically inspired and driven scheme. Or is He? The Apostle John, I believe, expects and desires us to see something different. As he focuses on these last minutes, what he wants us to see is, Something like how the brilliance of a diamond best shows up against a, the black velvet background. And so it is against the darkness of this night. The evil as the loved disciple becomes the betrayer. As the religious leaders who should have been welcoming and, and receiving and honoring Jesus as, as Messiah and Lord are rejecting Him and seeking to have Him killed as the powers of the world seek to stomp out the King of kings and Lord of lords, as it seems that Satan is gaining the victory, the reality is very different. What John wants us to see, I believe, in this passage is that in the darkness of this night, the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ Jesus the Christ shines bright. Just as back in chapter 1 of this Gospel, John wrote these words, and the Word, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. We beheld His glory, he goes on to say, as the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and John, all through his gospel, is constantly calling our attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. John is the last of the gospel writers to write. He is writing, I believe, as an old man. It's been uh, the other apostles are, are gone. And I believe he's seeking here in this chapter to point out some things that we don't see in the others. In the other gospel accounts, we see the, the suffering of Christ, the anguish of Christ. We see the time he spends in prayer, but John focuses on these last minutes, I believe, to call our attention to the glory of Christ. He wants us to know that in this moment, when it seems like evil is gaining the upper hand, that Jesus here is not a victim. Jesus is the sovereign King. Not a victim. And we see it here in many, many ways as we go through the text. We've seen that Jesus leads the disciples and they go to the garden. But we wonder, why does Jesus go here? Why does Jesus go to the garden and why to this garden? They were there in the nice, comfortable upper room. Had dinner. They were hanging out. And then they leave and wander through the city and then go across the Kidron Valley to this garden. And we wonder why. Did Jesus just want a nice, quiet place to pray? place to get alone? I think the answer is in verse 2. Continues, Now Judas who betrayed Him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with His disciples. You can underscore, highlight that little word, often. Jesus goes there. He says, Jesus who betrayed Him knew the place. Jesus already knew that Judas was the betrayer, sent him off to do his work. May I say that was likely why they left the upper room? (laughs) Because Judas went to go betray him and to go bring the arresting officers to get him and so it was time to leave the upper room. But Jesus wanted more time so they wander through the streets. Then they go here. Why this garden? I think Jesus is making it easy for Judas to find Him. Kind of like when you're playing hide-and-seek with your kids or your grandkids. And you're running through the house and you get that place and you realize after you've gotten there that maybe this is a little too good. The kids are wandering around and, they're, and you have to start making noises. Oh, oh, oh. Where are you? Where are you? Oh, over here, over here. you know. That's kind of what Jesus, I think, is doing for Judas. See, you know, Jesus often went here. In Luke's account, chapter 22, verse 39 in Luke's Gospel, he says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him. John has an interesting comment over in back in chapter 7, at the last verse of chapter 7 and the first verse of chapter 8. Again, you know that those chapter markings aren't original. They were, and somebody messed up here. Those two went right together and it says this, the crowd leaves, they each went to his own house, next verse, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus, the Lord of glory, you remember Him saying that Birds have their nests and foxes have holes in the ground, but the Son of Man has no place of His own, that is, to lay His head. But it appears that when people went home, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, most likely to this same garden where He usually went, as was His custom. This apparently, you see, I think is home base. It's when they're in Jerusalem, and they don't have a Super 8 motel or a budget inn, they don't have a condo there, an apartment, where does he go? If they want to take the trip to go over to Mary and Martha's house, two miles over the Mount of Olives to Bethany, they might go there, but when you want to stay close to Jerusalem, I think they went to the garden. When you just want to get away from the crowd, where do they go? to the garden. Apparently, they had an arrangement with the owner. It was their place to use. So there's no secret here. Their private retreat, their favorite camp out spot is the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the most obvious place for Judas to look to find Jesus. You see, what I see in that is Jesus is orchestrating The place of his arrest. Several times people have tried to grab Jesus. They have sought to arrest him back in chapter 7. They sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, it says, because his time had not yet come. A few verses later, they send soldiers again to arrest him. And after a while, the soldiers come back to the the, to the religious leaders, and without Jesus, they say, Where is he? And they said, Nobody ever spoke like Him. (laughs) They couldn't arrest Him. You recall there was a time up in in Galilee where where this enraged crowd sought to throw Him over a cliff and they they grab Him and they, they want to haul Him off and throw Him over this cliff, but Jesus walks right through them. You see, Jesus couldn't be caught until He was ready to be caught. And when it's time for Jesus to be caught, And it wasn't time before the Passover dinner. You recall, Jesus was secretive about that. The Passover dinner was coming up Thursday night, and He sent two disciples to go get ready. They say, where are we going? They want to know the address. He says, well, when you get to town, look and you'll see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. And when you do, follow him. And you watch him. And when he goes up and goes into a house, you go up there to the house and say, where's the room that our Master is going to use for the Passover. And they'll take you up and that's where you're going to be. And then Jesus comes with the rest of the disciples later and leaves them there. Why? I think He's just making it hard for Judas. Judas can't make the arrangements, but when it's time, go to the usual spot. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Judas, we're over here. Jesus is not a victim. He's not hiding. He makes it easy to find. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it's around 3 in the morning that Judas arrives with a a band of soldiers. Some of your translations say a cohort. The Greek word here simply can mean a group, a band, a circle, but it was also a technical term in the Roman army. And it stood for a one-tenth part of a legion, which would be 600 soldiers. And it would appear that that's exactly what shows up here. They have Roman soldiers. They've got Roman soldiers, 600 of them, and they have the right commander when you look down later. It's the soldiers and their captain. And he wouldn't go out alone. He's going to bring the whole group with him. 600 soldiers, and it says, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The officers here weren't the, you know, the president, the vice president, the secretary and treasurer. The officers here mean like officers of the law. These were the temple police. The, the temple, The Jews couldn't have their own army because they were under Roman occupation, but the Romans allowed them to have an elite military squad that was the temple police. You add this together, and this is somewhere probably between 800 and 1,000 soldiers armed to the teeth. Weapons and torches. Does it really take a force of 1,000 men to arrest one carpenter. It does if your enemies are afraid of you. You see, I believe Jesus' enemies fear Him. The religious leaders know that this man has worked miracles. They know this is not a normal man. So they're afraid of him. The political leaders are just always afraid of anything Jewish can blow up. So they send a thousand men. Besides that, even the, even the political leaders have seen what can happen. You see, they're taking no chances. Just a few days before, on Monday, they saw this man cleanse the temple of the money changers, the robbers, the thieves, the corrupt merchants there in the, the temple square, the mall area. And we hear that in Sunday school lessons and we think, yeah, he chased some folks out of the temple. You know, he had a little temper tantrum because they were crooked and, and turned over some tables and, but you realize it was a miracle. See, it's not something simple. It would really be like going on Black Friday to Mid Rivers Mall and there one unarmed man going through the place and chasing out every merchant in the mall and instead of the couple of mall cops on (laughs) segways you have several hundred fully armed fully trained soldiers who have no reservations and hesitations to kill anybody who creates a problem you see this is a miracle of big proportions and it's enough to make religious and political leaders saying, if we're going to go arrest this man, we better be prepared. And 800 to 1,000 soldiers show up. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. The disciples obviously didn't realize it at the time. They were fearful. They were in panic mode. But John, I believe in retrospect looking at this, sees it ever so clearly. How could we have missed it? How did we not know? With everything that Jesus said in the weeks leading up to this, in the days leading up to this, in the, in the evening before this, all that He said and all that He did made it so clear, He knew everything that was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by the arrival of these uninvited intruders. and He also knew everything that was yet to unfold. Back to verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, He came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am He. There's our I am statement. I am He. Judas who betrayed Him was standing with them. You know, it's Passover. Since the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, Passover is always, always a full moon. Palestine, clear skies usually. Full moon, bright. You can see outside very clearly as you can here on so many Full moons. Why do they come with torches and lanterns? Well, they bring a thousand soldiers because they expect perhaps resistance. They also bring torches and lanterns because they could also expect that Jesus and the disciples might take a run for it. They're going to have to hunt them down and look under the, you know, behind the bushes and under the, you know, in the holes and under. They've got to have torches and lanterns. But Jesus surprises them here. Jesus doesn't run away. Did you notice what it says He does? Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and says to them, Jesus takes the initiative. He comes to His enemies and He gets in the first words. Jesus isn't running from the cross. He's not trying to get away. He's moving toward the cross. The glory of Jesus. He chooses the place. He's in control of the circumstances. His enemies fear Him. He knows everything that's going to happen. He's moving towards this arrest and the cross. Verse 6, When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I love this. My favorite verses in here. Jesus simply says, I am He. And a thousand soldiers fall over. And I wonder in my imagination, Did they fall over backwards like Jesus blew them over? Or just knocked them over? Or do they fall forward as they got a blinding glimpse of His glory for a second and they, they cower and fall down on their faces? A thousand of them fall to the ground. And I wonder, that's why they sent a thousand soldiers. They were afraid something like this might happen. But I wonder, how do you arrest someone like this? Why do you even try? And yet they get up again and Jesus again asks, Whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And I wonder that time if they're going like this. (laughs) I kind of think they did. Flinch, flinched. They ducked. Kind of a comical scene, but tragic. Because why would you arrest a man after this? Why would you arrest someone who obviously has this kind of power for those who are the Jews, who are the temple guards? Why would they arrest this man who obviously from everything they would have seen all this time is from God? It's tragic because it's A tragic example of the hardness of the rebellious human heart. But I think that God put this here to serve as a neon sign to these disciples and later to you and me a sign that flashes and that screams out, I am the sovereign King. I am not a victim here. Jesus had the power with the Word to defeat His enemies. Jesus is choosing this path. He is not being driven anywhere. He is moving toward the cross. Verse 8, Jesus is in control. It's subtle, but look close to see it. Jesus answered, He says, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I have a feeling that most anybody, if they are being approached by a thousand soldiers who are seeking to take them down and arrest them, they don't sit there and negotiate the terms of their surrender. It's me you seek, let them go. I have the opinion as I read this that the Apostle John later realized that when Jesus said this, He wasn't asking. He was stating a fact. Giving an order. You came for Me. Let them go. Because He says He did this to fulfill what He said. What He prayed back just the chapter before. Jesus prayed this. Lord, Father, the ones whom You gave Me, I have not lost one. And I'm still on duty. And I won't lose them now. And so, while the soldiers probably don't realize it, they are simply following His order. He said, let them go. And they did. And that's all the more miraculous when you read what happens next. Look at the next verse. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was Malchus and i for one am so thankful that peter is one of the disciples because i don't know about you but i just draw so much comfort from peter peter occasionally gets everything gets things just right he nails it and he just goes yeah peter it's like you know me at golf. You get that one shot where you just go, "Yeah, I'm a pro. I'm good." And then the rest of the game is like Peter, who the other times he gets the right thing at the wrong time, or the right the wrong thing at the right time, or the wrong thing at the wrong time. In other words, three or three out, three out of four times he's wrong. And I draw comfort from that because Peter here, you see, back in the Chapter a couple of chapters before as Jesus is talking. And Peter steps up. It's actually back in chapter 13 at the Last Supper. And Peter says, Lord, I'm Your guy. You can count on Me. I am Your man. I will die for You. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows, before dawn, in other words, you're going to deny me three times. It's interesting. Who talks the most out of all the disciples? Peter. Peter doesn't say another word. From the end of chapter 13 on, you never read another word that Peter says. At least up to this time. My opinion, Peter's like this I mean it. I'm going to die for him. I really am. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'll show him. I think he's thinking that. He's just kind of stewing. Now, when they come into the garden, the disciples, I believe, are distraught. They are seeing Jesus as they have never seen Him. He's in anguish and sorrow. As He comes in, He says, guys, and He pulls Peter and James and John aside and He says, you guys pray. And you pray for yourselves that you will not fall into temptation. And Jesus goes and prays. And you remember what happens. They fall asleep. (laughs) He comes back and wakes them up and Jesus goes off and prays. They fall asleep. and And the third time He wakes them up, He says, guys, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I'm glad He understands us because we're probably weaker than them. Peter needed to be praying that he wouldn't fall into temptation he slept instead, but here it is, here's the moment of truth. The soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus, and, and Peter's like, what am I gonna do? Wait! <laughs> right there at the end of chapter 13, I said, or at the end of the Last Supper, he says, rather, he says, Jesus, we got two swords! In Luke's account, we're ready! Jesus, put them away, Peter. i one of those two swords. I'm packing heat. I was ready for this. I always knew there would be a day. Got my concealed carry permit. He pulls out his sword. And he's saying, I said I would die with Jesus. And before I go, I'm going to get at least one of them. And he pulls it out and he starts going. And he's seen this done. He's going to go. He's aiming for the center of that guy's skull. He's going to split the skull. Kill that guy. They're going to kill him. And that's okay. I'm going to do what I said for Jesus. I'm going to die for him. It was the, maybe the right heart, but the wrong action. Because Jesus wasn't fighting. Jesus was moving to this. He wasn't resisting it. He's moving to it, but Peter doesn't get it. That's what Jesus was wanting Peter and the disciples to pray about, was to see what God is, how He's moving, where He needs to go. But Peter. He's more impetuous than he is a great soldier, and he's aiming for this for Malchus, and Malchus dodges, and instead of splitting the skull, he cuts the ear. It's the wrong action, and it's the wrong time. Peter needs this courage, this boldness, but not there. He needs it a couple hours later in the courtyard with the little girl. She says, Aren't you one of the ones who is with him? Three times he denies Jesus. See, the reason I know that Jesus is in control here is not only does He say, I want you to let these guys go, but then Peter goes and tries to kill one of them, and you've got a thousand fully armed, Fully trained soldiers who work instinctively. And Roman soldiers who would rather kill than ask questions. And not one of them is dead or injured or even arrested. They arrest Jesus and the others are free to go. I think the only explanation for that is Jesus is in control. One more thing I see here. Verse 11, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink? And by the way, before he moves on, you remember that Jesus also healed that man's ear. Again, why do these guys arrest this man? boggles the mind. The hardness of the human rebellious heart put your sword in its sheath. shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. And we know the rest of the story. They take Him off mock trials, illegal trials, and they kill Him. But what we see here is that what Jesus is about to endure is not a cup that is forced upon Him by the evil religious leaders. It's not a cup that is from the Romans nor a cup that is from Satan that is foisted upon Him. It is a cup that He chooses. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to Me? Jesus in John chapter 10 and verses 17-18, to He said that I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. Jesus chooses to go to the cross. He chooses to give up His life. No one takes it from Him. Something else to notice about this cup that He chose Not only a cup He chose, but it's a dreaded cup. It's interesting, as humiliating as all the lies and the insults and the mocking that were heaped upon Jesus, as cruel and vicious as the beatings and the scourgings that He endured, as excruciating as I'm sure those nails in His hands and feet must have been, and as unimaginably horrific as death on a cross is from every description we can read of it, that is not what Jesus dreaded the most. What He dreaded the most is this cup. The other three Gospels tell us that of those three hours that were spent where Jesus prayed in anguish and in sorrow and in trouble, It speaks of His intense and persistent prayer. And it was the same all the way through. His prayer was this. It was, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. What Jesus dreaded was the cup. And I don't think personally that the cup was the cross it was a portion of it, but the real cup, I believe, is a cup, is a cup from, as he says here, it's a cup from the Father. It's the one the Father gives him. And I believe it is, as you go through scripture and you read of the cup of God's wrath. This is the cup of God's wrath against sin, which God's justice and it demands that this wrath be poured out on, in the form of eternal punishment upon every sin and upon every one who ever committed sin. It's the fury of his wrath. And that's the cup which God the Father is going to pour out upon God the Son. You see, back in chapter one of John's Gospel, John explains that this is why Jesus came. He did it for us. John 1.29, it says that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God enacted a rescue plan to deal with our sin problem. God became man to become a sin bearer to take our sin upon Him. And along with our sin, to take the wrath of God upon Himself. Jesus was man so that He could die. Fully man so that He could die. And fully God so that when He died, His death would be of infinite worth, infinite value. Able to cover the sin of every man and every woman, every human, every person who has ever sinned. And able to cover The payment of sin, which was an eternal debt. An infinite God could pay an infinite debt and yet do it in a moment of time. I don't understand it all, but it was God's plan. And Jesus dreaded this cup because He knew what we will never fully understand. We will most be able to grasp so much more when we finally are in heaven when we finally understand what holiness really is and how awful sin is, when we finally truly understand the cost of sin, and this is the cup Jesus dreaded in His prayer was, if it be possible, take this cup from Me. But His obedience to the Father was never in question. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. The the question was only, if there is another way, do it. But if not, I do your will. And there was no other way. There is no other way. And so Jesus chose the cross. Intentionally, deliberately, He drank that cup of God's wrath for me and for you. Two applications very quickly as I wrap up. I can only think really of two things that are really the ultimate response to this. The first is for you this morning, if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You may have been going to church every day of your life It does not matter if you are not trusting Jesus Christ. Because you need to understand that there is no other way to be rescued from sin. If there was, Jesus would have taken it. If there was, the cross was in vain. Rather, Jesus said that whoever believes in the Son has, well, First, God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has everlasting life. But the opposite is true. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. But God's wrath remains on Him. Instead of Jesus being the one who bears the wrath of God for your sins, you will bear it yourself that is the warning of Scripture, but is the invitation of Jesus saying, receive this gift of salvation which He has paid for. Trust in Jesus as your Savior today. If you're here today and you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, which is probably the majority of us, there is again simply one application that I would have for you. The second application of this service. And it really is wrapped up here in these words of Paul to the Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced of this, that He died for all, and therefore all have died, and He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised again in their behalf, or for them who was raised again question for us who believe in Jesus is, what are we living for? What are you living for? If the answer to that is anything except Jesus, it's an answer that doesn't make sense. Paul is saying the only logical conclusion, the only logical response, the only response that makes sense is, since Jesus loved me that much, I should live for Him. Father, we've been confronted this morning with majesty, the glory of Jesus. God incarnate, God in human form, who came here to be our Savior. And in these last moments in Gethsemane, it became crystal, brilliantly clear, He was not a victim. He was indeed the Lord of glory on a mission to drink the cup of Your wrath that we deserve. Lord God, forgive us for so often taking that for granted, thinking so little of it. As we come to this season where we focus a little more on the death and the resurrection of Christ, may it sink into us deeper than it ever has, how deep is Your love, how vast and great is Your mercy. And then, Lord, may what follow be the only logical response. May we not only give You worship with our lips, but worship with our lives. May we live for Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.